Well, good morning. He is risen. Ah, you catch on quick. Very good. Great to be with you here this morning, celebrate Resurrection Sunday with you. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday and every day at Mount Hope. But on this particular weekend, we always take some time out to remember the events of Jesus' life uh, between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And we're glad that you're here for that. My name is Rick Piccarello. I'm the senior pastor here at Mount Hope. If we have not had the chance to meet, uh, we're glad that uh, you have been able to join us uh, this morning and hopefully we'll get a chance to meet soon. If you haven't already and you are a guest, please stop by the Fresh Start table right outside our cafe. We'd love to give you a gift and thank you for visiting today. Our ushers are coming with something we call the Connection Notebooks. And uh, if you are a guest with us, we'd love to be able to, I'd love to be able to send you an email just thanking you for coming this week or send you a letter in the mail uh, just thanking you for coming this week as well. And as these notebooks go down your row, if you'd uh, be so kind and feel comfortable uh, letting us know your information, we'd love to greet you this week that way. If you're a regular attendee, we're glad you're here as well. This morning, we have one uh, special thing for you. Uh, many people are aware, obviously, that tomorrow uh, is the running of the Boston Marathon. Uh, and before I mention anything more about that, I'm curious, how many runners do we have in here this morning? Who is running the marathon tomorrow? Would you stand if you're running the marathon tomorrow? We've got a few. Yeah. Thank you. We, have a, we had a couple in the first service as well. Uh, obviously, tomorrow's marathon, many people are coming to it looking for all kinds of things. Many people are coming looking for hope, looking for healing, uh, looking for closure, all kinds of things after last year's bombings and the tragedies that happened. There's all kinds of expectations put on that day uh, tomorrow. Uh, many of you may have been here last year about this time after the marathon uh, talking about the events and we heard from Everett and Julia Spain who uh, were uh, there running the marathon but Everett had a unique opportunity at the finish line near the time of the bombings to be able to be one of those first responders and be able to help out uh, in whatever way uh, God would use him. He jumped in the fray to help out and last Friday uh, the Army, Everett serves in the Army. Uh, you may uh, not know that. But last uh, Friday, the Army recognized Everett with the Soldier's Medal, which is the highest medal uh, the military can give for valor in a non-combat situation. And Everett was awarded that last Friday. And I just want to recognize Everett if you'd stand. He and Julia were in the marathon last year, as I mentioned, but the reason Everett was at the finish line last year uh, was because he was part of a unique team in last year's marathon called Team Sabra. Uh, Steve Sabra is running the marathon tomorrow for the fourth time, the Boston Marathon, although it's his 31st marathon that he's running, but his fourth Boston that he's running. And Steve, uh, uniquely running the race, he's visually impaired, and so he always runs with a guide or a series of guides. And Everett and Julia both served as guides last year for 
Team Sabra. They didn't know it when they had signed up for it to help Steve. Steve usually uses students from Harvard Business School. He's had a connection there to help him, uh, guide him along. And so Julia and Everett signed up to be a part of the team. And they didn't know it then, but they found out running the race that Steve's a believer. He's a fellow Christian. He had t-shirts he handed out. He talked about scripture and they were able to encourage each other as they ran and uh, as I mentioned, he and Everett finished uh, last year's marathon just, uh, just behind those, uh, those bombings that took place, really moments. And so Everett handed Steve off uh, to another guide to uh, make sure he was safe. And then Everett ran to help anyone he could help. And uh, when they mentioned that Steve was a believer in everything that happened, I said, well, if he's coming back to run it next year, please let him know. We'd love to have him share a bit of his story of running marathons and his testimony with us here at Mount Hope. And so he has graciously agreed to share with us this morning. So would you welcome Steve Sabra as he comes to share this morning? Today is a great day for Christians around the world, for this is a reminder that we serve a living God and that we too are resurrected with him. Amen? Amen. My name is Steve Sabra, and it's a great privilege to be here with you and to worship with you. I really feel I am in the midst, me and my family, we are in the midst of family and we're worshiping God together. Amen? Well, um, Tomorrow, as Pastor had mentioned, uh, the Spain family and Jeff Reuter and I will be running in the Boston Marathon. So if we crossed your thoughts, please uh, pray for three S's. One S for safety, another S for strength, and the most important of all, S for speed, so we can keep up the pace. (laughs) Because we're focused on finishing. That's the main purpose. You know, Apostle Paul had used marathon running as an analogy for walking in faith. It takes a lot of training and practice for one to become efficient enough, very fit, so you can travel the distance efficiently to the finish line. My encounter with Jesus was not a one-time encounter on the road to Damascus, but rather it was a series of small steps along the way. I am still on the course. I am in training. I am a work in progress. In 1977, I came to this country to attend uh, college. I came from the country of Lebanon. And in college, I met my wife, Pat. We dated for a little while, and then after that, she invited me to the family ranch in Montana to meet her family. It was a great visit. And actually, Pat's grandmother, she thought I was a catch. (laughs) With all due humility, I really had to agree with the grandmother. (laughs) I had more hair and less wrinkles then. but (laughs) We chatted around the dining table. There was always plenty to eat. And right before leaving, my father-in-law walked into his room and walked out with a brand new Bible, King James, my favorite, and he gave to me. And that was my first encounter with Jesus. Shortly after that visit, when we got back to school, we got married, and last October we celebrated 33 years of being married together. thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
This morning, our son Danny and our dear friends, the Thompsons, are here with us also, and they are a great support, and they support us in everything we do. That's a great team, Sabra. Uh, shortly after we've been married for a little while, and it really was good to be married, and we're young and going to school, but what do you know? I graduated from architecture school. The economy was in a slump, but somehow I managed to find a part-time entry-level position with a small architecture firm. It didn't pay much, but it was a good step in the right direction, career-wise. Work was often slow, and so one day my boss came to me, and he gave me a verse from the book of uh, Proverbs, and he said to me, take this and practice your architectural lettering. He claimed that those verses had more meaning and wisdom than building materials, so then I could reflect on it and meditate as I was practicing my lettering. I personally didn't care because it was paying the same pittance anyway, so, so I was thankful for that. And so as I was reading it, yes, I was reflecting on it and trying to understand it. Well, workload was not picking up very much, and another slow day, he asked me if I minded terribly studying the Bible with him in his office. Again, as long as I was on the clock, it was fine with me. So we walked into his office, and he started, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Really, that was really tough for both of us. It was tough for him to explain. It was tough for me to digest and absorb. I could tell. I mean, he's my boss. He was anxious. You know, he wanted me to believe. And I felt I wasn't ready to run the race yet. So sometimes when you're running in a race, the crowds, they cheer you on with good intentions. They want you to do well. But you can only run according to your level of fitness and pace. However much others' wishes are well-intentioned. But those two meetings in that office, that was another step on the way to Jesus. So being that as it may, I lost my thought right now, so there's a pause. Uh, pray for me. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, was, it was a great, it was a great uh, pace, and, and we, we finished that race with him, and so it was a walk. But before too long, some of our friends invited us to a church to attend a concert was the Jeremiah group, is a singing group, and we attended that concert, and after the singing was over, was followed by a brief sermonette, and then they dimmed the lights, and they extended a call to come to Jesus. At that time, as the lights were dimmed, and I was sitting in my seat, I'm not sure what happened that night, but it seemed like it was a confluence of many things together. I felt a tug on my heart that I had never felt before. And I felt suddenly disappointed God. I have disappointed God with my disobedience. And I felt like I have broken his heart because I have never been the good son that I ought to have been. So at that moment, I bowed my head and I bowed my heart. And I shed a little tear and I prayed and I invited Jesus into my heart. And that evening was a great stride on a lifelong journey to Jesus. You know, in every race... The first few miles are very exciting. You could feel the energy of the crowds and their support through their cheers. And a few miles into the race, as you go in farther, suddenly some of that excitement 
turns into a little fatigue. You can still hear the crowds and their cheers, but they're a little bit more muffled now. And so you keep on running. And as you keep on running, you're a little bit more tired. You get to mile 16, and suddenly you realize that you have cut some distance, but you're still a ways away from the finish line. So you plod on some more to mile marker 20, where your body is no longer happy and it's no longer responding to the crowd's cheers like it did in the earlier miles. And suddenly, as you're running, all the sounds around you are quieted, except for your thoughts are a little louder with questions and doubts. And suddenly, you doubt that you can finish the race. And sometimes you question yourself and you think, maybe I should have set this race out this year. And at times wondering if you just shouldn't quit altogether. But suddenly, you have this faith that comes in you, and it pushes you through, because you know, though you have not seen it, that there is a finish line within reach. So you press on. So many times in our lives, we have questions more than answers. But somehow, we all manage to get to the finish line through the grace of God. And our faith and perseverance get us there. So as we all walk our course of faith, and as we go on to our journey, as we get to the finish line, there will be Jesus waiting for us with a wreath for which we have set our eyes on all along. And he will be saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have run the good race. Now you can find your rest in me. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. A happy Easter. Thank you, Steve, for sharing, and that's his son, Danny, helping him to the stage and off, and his wife, Pat, and other friends and family here. We're grateful for you being here. I know it's a busy weekend, obviously, for you, and for you even to take a few moments to be with us, Steve, and share with us. We really appreciate it, and we do want to pray for you. We want to pray for that safety and speed and strength for tomorrow. Uh, for Steve, Everett, Julia, all the runners, all that will be running tomorrow, we want to pray for that time. I want to pray, add a fourth S to that, and that is, uh, I guess, the only S I can come up with in speaking, that God would speak to you as you run. When you hit that mile 20, 21, I, I, I wish I could say I know what it's like, Steve. I don't. Maybe one day. But when you hit that mile 20 and the voice is quiet, may it be the voice of God that speaks to you and that you hear him speaking clearly to you. We're going to pray for them. We're also going to uh, pray as we receive our offering uh, this morning and as we prepare to worship the Lord with our giving. The Lord has given so much to us. It is our privilege and worship to give back to him, and we do that in worship today. And uh, we're going to do that, and we're going to pray for um, Steve as well and all the other runners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, I thank you that you have given us all a guide to run the race. I thank you for those that will be running with Steve tomorrow on Team Sabra as he endeavors to finish this fourth Boston Marathon. I thank you for guides that will run along us, alongside us at times in the race we run on this earth. But I thank you, Lord, this morning most of all for your Holy Spirit that runs alongside us as we run this Christian race. You guide us, you lead us, you speak to us, you direct us, you nudge us in the right direction. 
And so, Father, we are so grateful for that. Lord, we do pray, Lord, for these runners tomorrow. We ask, God, that you would give them safety. Lord, we ask for safety over the whole course, Lord, from Hopkinton to Boston. Lord, may your peace and safety rest over every one of those 26.2 miles, Lord. God, let it be just a time of celebration and enjoyment and achievement of goals. And Lord, those that are running again that may never have thought that they would run again, may you strengthen them and may they feel your presence with them tomorrow. Father, I pray for Steve and uh, others that we know that are running, where would you also give them strength? God, Everett and Julia, would you give them strength to finish the race that they start, achieve the goal that they've set out before them? And would you give them speed, Lord? Lord, that they have been training for so long and so hard. Bless them with that. And may every one of those runners at the end, God, may they, wherever they are with you, may they somehow come to the realization that you are the God that created them, gifted them with the ability to run, with the ability to run the race and finish this race. And Lord, may on this Resurrection Sunday, your message go out to all the earth that you have come and you have lived and died and rose again so that we might be in relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We commit this time to you. We ask that you receive this offering as worship unto you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, because it is Resurrection Sunday, we wanted to make sure we did something very special uh, to mark this Sunday. And you said we've had a baptism, we've had a great testimony given what else could we do. But we have gone above and beyond uh, to get the speaker uh, that everybody wants to hear from this morning. Maybe you've heard of TED Talks. TED Talks are short um, talks that are given on ideas worth sharing. So maybe a talk on to change the way you think, maybe a talk to change uh, your attitude, um, and eventually, Ted says, to change the world. And so we have someone that we've invited to give us uh, a TED-style talk this morning. And we've spared no expense. Literally thousands of other churches wanted this person to speak this morning, but we got them. We had to go back in time to find this person we had to get a DeLorean and a flux capacitor and everything. It wasn't easy, but we did it. Uh, so would you please welcome this morning the Apostle Peter to come and share. Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning. Great to be here with you. As uh, Pastor Brian mentioned, I am a man in demand, but I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Often when I'm asked to talk at, at gatherings like this, they want me to talk about leadership. They want me to talk about being a leader in the church, being a leader and how it was in the early Christian church. They say, Peter, come and talk to us about what it means to lead. The more and more I talk about those things, I realize that I don't really know that much about leading, but I know a lot about following. And it seems like many times these days that everyone wants to be a leader and nobody wants to follow, which works out well for those leading, except for the fact that nobody follows them. You know, I think there's a secret to being a good follower. 
And when it comes to being a Christian and following Jesus, we all need to discover what it is the secret to being a follower. Let me tell you, first of all, what it doesn't take to be a good follower. You know, some people think, they think about following Jesus or being a follower, and they say, well, I don't have... I don't have the upbringing. I don't have the background. You don't know what's in my background. I don't have the pedigree to be a follower of Jesus. Well, to tell you the truth, I didn't either. Uh, I was a, and still am, really a fisherman. I fished at night. I'd go out with my men, and we'd let down nets in the middle of the lake, and we'd hopefully bring in a catch. We'd spend the next day selling the fish in the market, or mending our nets. Either way, I'd spend the day and the night smelling like the bottom of a lake. And this is what my father did and his father before him and his father before him. And it was a good living. But it wasn't what you call the upbringing that might be a great leader. I wasn't educated like many great leaders would be. I didn't have all the knowledge that many people might expect that I would have. I was a fisherman. And one day while we were coming back from fishing, it had been a long night. We hadn't caught anything, really. So on days like that, we don't go to the market. We just mend the nets, clean the boats, get ready to go out again that night. So Andrew and I, that's what we were doing. We were sitting there mending the nets. And along comes this man, stands by us. I remember it like it was yesterday. He stood there and he just said two words. He said, follow me. Looking back on it, I guess it seems kind of odd. And certainly what we did next would seem kind of odd. We dropped our nets. It was kind of like he was asking, but also like he was commanding, and the invitation was somewhat irresistible. And even though it seems strange now, at the moment, it just seemed like the only thing and the right thing to do. So we dropped our nets, and we left, and we began to follow Jesus. We found out we weren't the only ones. It's me and Andrew and 10 other guys, and none of them had a background that, that you would expect. We didn't have any rabbis. Not a lot of educated people. I mean, most of us were fishermen. Matthew is a tax collector. It took a while getting used to him being around. And then Judas was always concerned about money, and that became a problem later. But for the most part, we're just 12 guys following this one guy, Jesus, learning how to be followers. We didn't have the background. You see, I guess sometimes people find their way in life, and then for other people, the way finds them. And that's the way it was for me. I was just going about my daily business, and some people find their way, and sometimes the way finds you. That's what happened for us. Uh, but other times people say, yeah, but Peter, you're a great speaker. You're, we have your sermons. We have letters that you wrote, and you know, you're a great speaker, and I could never follow Jesus the way you follow Jesus because I don't have that ability to speak. And I say, you don't understand. I mean, me and the guys, we said some of the dumbest things you would ever think to say. I mean, everyone remembers the walking on water thing, right? I heard some pastor in California wrote a book about it. 
still waiting on the royalty check. But he, everyone remembers the walking on the water and the sinking thing. But there were other things we said. And when I think back to the things that now, knowing who Jesus is, that we said right to his face. I mean, you don't have to be a great speaker because we said some dumb things right to Jesus' face. I remember this one time. Jesus was teaching. And I, I thought he just taught. I thought it would be like an hour. But then I realized I was starting to get hungry, and I realized he's been teaching all day. And we were sitting there listening to him, and we were so engaged that we didn't even realize it was dinner time. But it wasn't just us 12. Otherwise, we were just going to get something to eat. But there were like, I don't even know how many people. There were thousands, 5,000 men at least. I don't even know how many women and children. So you know, the guys and I, we didn't know what to say. We, we said, we've got to tell them. So we went to Jesus, and we said, Jesus, Send the people away. They got to go eat. We don't, you know, they got to eat. And not to mention, we're kind of hungry too, but these people got to go eat. Telling Jesus to send people away. We, we, would, we would try and tell Jesus things all the time. Jesus looked at us. He looked at us and said something I never expected. He, he said, you give them something to eat. We just looked at each other. What is he? What are you supposed to do? Give him something to eat. We didn't bring any food with us. It would take a month wages to feed all these people. How are we going to give them something to eat? Here we are. We got Jesus, the bread of life in front of us, and we're telling him there's nothing to eat. He said, what do you have? And he said, we got some bread and some fish. A little boy brought for his lunch. He said, give them to me. So Jesus took the bread and the fish, and he broke it and blessed it. He said, give it to the people. We started handing it out, and it was the craziest thing. I, I would hand out bread from my basket, and every time there'd be more bread in the basket. I hand out fish, and I never ran out of fish. And, and at the end, we even had leftovers. We told Jesus there was nothing to eat. Now, you don't have to be a great speaker. <laughs> there was another time we were out on the lake one night. We were out on the lake, and you know, look, I've been out on the lake. I'm a fisherman. I've been in storms. But this one storm came up that I thought, we're not going home from this one. I mean, the wind was whipping, and the boat was just bouncing up and down. And I thought, this is it. We're not going home. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat. And so we said, we've got to wake him up. So we woke up Jesus, and we, we said to Jesus, Jesus, we said, Aren't, don't you care that we're going to die uh, looking back, it seems kind of silly. He looked at us and he said, where's your faith? Ouch. Where's our faith? And then he didn't look at us. He looked at the wind and the waves. And he just said, peace, be still. And the wind stopped. And the waves stopped. And it was still. And we sat there with our dripping garments, sail just standing still, not knowing what to do. Yeah, we said some dumb things to Jesus, and to be honest, to be honest, I said some, maybe some of the worst ones. I remember the uh, one time Jesus was telling us all about what was going to happen. He was said he was going to go to the cross He's going to go to Jerusalem. He'd be arrested. And some guys would arrest him. And then 
have a trial and they'd crucify him on a cross. Oh, it was so silent in that moment. No one said a thing. So I spoke up and I said, Jesus, not you. No way. That's not going to happen to you. They're not going to crucify you. This isn't going to happen. I told Jesus what was going to happen and how it was going to go. I said some dumb things to Jesus. He looked at me. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Jesus looked in my eyes, and he said, I was doing the work of Satan with the words that I was speaking. Now, following Jesus doesn't mean you're always going to have the right words to say. It doesn't mean that you never speak a, a, a harsh word. It doesn't mean that you're perfect in your words Later on, we were at the Passover meal, and uh, we get to the place where we're going to celebrate the Passover, and there's no servant there to wash our feet. So the 13 of us are standing around, kind of just looking, not knowing what to do. I mean, we can't recline at the table. We all got dirty feet, but there's no servant to wash them, so we're kind of standing around, and, and then Jesus goes and gets the basin and the towel starts to wash our feet. He washes uh, Nate and Bart and Matt and John. And then he comes to me, and no one was saying anything. And so I spoke up. So I said, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And he looked at me, and he says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Ouch. I said, oh, okay, Jesus, then not my feet. Wash my whole body. And Jesus said, Peter, it's just your feet that are dirty. I said, okay, wash my feet. Jesus washed our feet. I mean, I said some dumb things to Jesus. But the one that was, one I remember the most, was that same night he told us what was going to happen. He said, look, they're going to come and arrest me. Take me to a cross and crucify me. And he had said that before. But then he said, and all of you are going to desert me. And it's silent. No one said anything. So I spoke up. And I said, Jesus, they might all desert you, but not me. Not me, Jesus. I will never leave you. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, you're going to die for me? He said, Peter, before this night is over, you're going to deny you even know me three times. I thought, never. Never. So we went to the garden to pray. And, well, to be fair, Jesus prayed. We slept most of the time. And he would come back and he'd pray and he'd wake us up and we mostly slept, he mostly prayed. And finally, one last time, he came to wake us up and he said, come on, the time is, time is here. And so we got up, we were a bit groggy, wiping the sleep from our eyes and we're walking out of the garden and we see this group of soldiers coming towards us with torches, swords. And Judas comes and kisses Jesus. 
He comes and kisses Jesus to identify him as the one that they had come to get. When he did, no one said anything. No one did anything. So I grabbed a sword that I had been carrying on me. And I took a swing at one of the guards. Tried to cut off his head, but I'm a fisherman, not a soldier. (laughs) Ended up cutting his ear off. Jesus looked at me and he said, Peter. He said, Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. This is not the kingdom I came to bring. Ouch. He then, uh, I saw him uh, down and pick up the ear of uh, the soldier, put it back on his head and healed him in that moment. Jesus healed the man that came to arrest him, to bring him to trial. And then everyone left. Everyone left. Well, except me and John. John, we hung around a little while longer. John was, he had an inn and he was able to get into the temple and see where the trial was and I asked him to get me in too and he, and he got me into the outer courts and so I kind of just hung around there trying to hear what was going on inside and warming myself by the fire hoping no one would notice me but someone noticed me and he said, hey, hey, you were with Jesus. I said, no, 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 I wasn't. No, not me. I moved to another fire. Someone else said, yeah, yeah, you are with him. You're one of his followers. And I said, I started cursing and I said, no, I don't even know the guy you're talking about. I moved a little closer to the exit and, and a servant girl, just a little young girl, said, you were with him. I know you were with him. And I screamed out, I don't know the man. I heard the rooster crow. And I remembered the words of Jesus. That before the cock crows, I would deny that I even knew him. And I did. And he knew that I would. And I went out and wept And then they crucified Jesus. And everyone left him. John was there at the foot of the cross. Mary and some of the other ladies, but the rest of us left. I wish I could say I stayed. I wish I could say I didn't leave him. I wish I could say that I stuck by his side through everything, but I left. I wasn't there. The next day was the Sabbath. And I've had some quiet Sabbaths in my day. And we don't work. We don't walk. We don't go anywhere. But that was the quietest Sabbath I've ever experienced. No one said anything. I just sat in the silence of that Saturday. Next day, the first day of the week, Sunday, some of the ladies were going to go bring some spices to anoint in his body. (laughs) They came running back, still had the spices, came running back and said, the body's gone. And there was someone there that said that he has risen and said, go tell Peter and disciples to wait for me in Jerusalem. Peter and the disciples. 
tell me? I went to, I had to see it for myself, so I ran to the tomb, and sure enough, it was empty. But we didn't know what it meant. So that night, we all got together on that Sunday night, and we went to a room and locked the door behind us. Because we thought, well, maybe somebody stole his body, and maybe they're going to come after us. Maybe they're coming to come round up all his followers. So we locked the door behind us, and we just kind of gathered in that room, not knowing what to do next, not knowing what had happened, wondering what it all meant. Had the last three years been a waste? What do we do now? And in that moment, the one thing none of us expected happened. With the door locked, in that hidden place, Jesus showed up. And he showed up in the midst of the room, and he said, peace I bring you. And he said he had risen from the dead just just like he said that he would. And we couldn't believe it, but there he was right in the midst of us. We weren't all there. Thomas wasn't there. We went and told Thomas afterwards, and he said, I doubt it. I've got to see the, unless I see the nail scars in his hands and his feet, I'm not going to believe it. So then a few days later, Jesus shows up again, and he says, Thomas, there's the scars in my hands and my feet. Come and touch them. And he believed. But then he was gone again. And we didn't know what to do. So we're sitting around one day and trying to figure out what to do next. And I said, well, I'm a fisherman. I'm going fishing. So some of the other guys, seven of us, I think, all together, and John was there and Andrew and Thomas and a couple other guys, we got in the boat and we went fishing. It's a bad night of fishing. We didn't catch anything. (laughs) Near the morning, someone called to us from the shore and said, I'll let your net out on the other side. They threw the net on the other side. We pulled up the greatest catch of fish I've ever seen. The net was full with 153 of the largest fish you've ever seen. John said to me, it's Jesus. And I got out of that boat, and I ran and swam to shore, and soaking wet, stood right in front of Jesus. Jesus was making breakfast. He had a fire going there, and he said, he said Simon, go get, go get some fish, and we'll cook breakfast. And so the guys had brought in the boat and the fish, and so I went over to the boat, and I grabbed the whole net of 153 fish and threw it there. And Jesus made breakfast. But he hadn't said anything to me, and I knew he knew. I knew he knew. I knew he knew what I had done. And he hadn't said anything about it yet. And so after breakfast, he looks at me, and he says, Simon, I wish you'd said Peter. I wish you said Peter. Peter means rock. That's the name he gave me. But he said, Simon. It's a, talks of a shiftiness, unstableness, anything but a rock. And he said, Simon, do you love me? 
like, I thought, well, this is an easy one. Yes, Jesus, I, I, Lord, I love you. He said, then feed my sheep, no problem. I thought we were good. I thought that was it. That was, yeah, that was a test. We were done. But then he said it again. He said, Simon, do you love me? I said, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. Okay. And we weren't done yet, because then he said a third time, Simon, do you love me? And when he said it a third time, I knew what he was doing. When he said it a third time, I knew that he knew. And I knew that he was reminding me that I had denied him three times. And so I said this time, I I said, Lord, you know everything. And he does. He knew that I denied him. He knew that I would deny him. And yet he was giving me another chance anyway. I said, Lord, you alone know. You alone know that I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. And then he said, uh, he said, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you want. But when you're old, someone else is going to dress you and someone else is going to lead you where you don't want to go. And I knew what he meant by that. He meant that I was going to be persecuted. He meant that if I stuck with him, I was not going to be able to control where I went. And he meant that if I stuck with him, I may end up dying the same kind of death that he died. And then he said two words that I hadn't heard for three years. He said, follow me. Follow me. And so that was the choice before me. I was going to live and deny him and live without him or I was going to follow him. And it was really no choice at all because with him there in front of me and everything he had done and with the love that he had showed, of course I would follow him even if it meant to a cross. And so the secret that I've learned. It's not about leading. It's about following. And it's true, most of the time, I follow from the front, but I'm still following. I'm not the leader. The secret I've learned is this. It's, it's not about what I can do for God or for Jesus. It's about what he's done for me. I wanted to do all kinds of things. I wanted to tell Jesus how it was going to be. I wanted to tell him how he was going to die or how he was not going to die, how he should feed people, how he should, what he should do to save us, what he should do going to Jerusalem or not. I wanted to tell him all kinds of things. I wanted to do all these things for him. But in the end, what I found out is the only thing I did was fail time and time again in my words, in my actions. The harder I tried, it seemed like the bigger fool I made of myself. But eventually, Jesus, he just asked me if I loved him and asked me to follow him. 
See, if you want to know the secret to be a great follower, you don't have to have some certain pedigree. You don't have to come from the right family. You don't have to have the right background. Maybe you're here today and you say, if you knew my background, there's no way that God would accept me. Or maybe you're here today and you're thinking, if you knew some of the things I said, you knew some of the things I've done, you'd know that there's no place in God's kingdom for me. I'm here to tell you that I've said worse than you've said and I've done worse to Jesus than you would do. And he invites me to follow him because it's not about what I did. It's not about what I can do for him. It's about what he did for me. See, I realized on that moment that the reason he went to the cross was so that I could be forgiven and so that all my failures and all the dumb things I said and all the dumb things I did could be forgiven by him and I could be his son walk with him the rest of my life. And when you come to the place where you realize that it's not what you can do for God that's important, but what he did for you, then you will have learned the secret to following him. God bless you. Thank you for your time. You know, when something captures national attention or even international attention, everybody has an opinion on it, don't they? In fact, we have TV stations that are dedicated to just people able to give their opinions about what's happening in the world. Multiple TV stations, more than two, where the the entire time, uh, it's just the issues and people giving their opinion on the issues. And we know what that's like. If we say certain things, everyone suddenly has an opinion. All I have to say is healthcare, and everyone has an opinion. Sometimes internationally, it captures our attention. And right now, everyone's, where's the plane? Are we going to find the black box? Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a thought. When Jesus walked the face of this earth, by the time he had been doing ministry for three years, everyone had an opinion. Everyone was, it was thinking about it. Everyone was trying to size this guy up. It's been three years. Everyone's starting to follow. The crowds are getting bigger. And everyone was talking. And Jesus knew that they were talking. The, the Romans had taken notice. The Jews had taken notice. The other Gentiles had taken notice. And Jesus knew everyone was talking. And there's this little story in Luke chapter 9. It's another story about Peter. And it's the time that Peter spoke correctly. And Jesus went to his disciples and he said, listen, I'm not, you know, naive. I know people are talking about me. What are they saying? And the disciples kind of shuffled their feet and they said, well, some people think you're Elijah. Come back. And other people think you're a prophet from a long time ago. And Jesus looked at them and he said, but who do you say I am? He asked them the one question that mattered. Not what do other people say about me, but who do you say that I am? No one said anything, so Peter spoke up. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And that question 
That one question that Peter got right at the end of the day is the only thing that matters through the ups and the downs of him following Jesus and through the difficult times of the journey and the easy times. The only thing that matters is that one question. When Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter came right back and said, you are the Messiah sent from God for us as well. It's the only question that matters. People are still talking about Jesus today. It's been over 2,000 years, and everybody has an opinion. And you can turn on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or the National Geographic Channel, and everybody's still talking, and everybody still has an opinion. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is who do you say Jesus is in your heart? Can we answer that question correctly? And maybe you're here this morning and you're just like where where Steve was at that concert. And you're not sure of exactly what's happening, but all the different pieces are coming together. And you would say, this is the morning. This is the time that I, for the very first time, would say to God, would say to Jesus Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And you would begin that race with him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you began that race a while ago, but you feel like you've wandered off course. You feel like you've gone away from that. You feel like you need to come back. And maybe this morning, just one more time in your heart, you want to come back and say to God, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the one who came to die for me and my sins. So I want to give us an opportunity to do that this morning. If you'd be willing to bow your head and close your eyes as we close today. I want to give you an opportunity if you're here and you have never made that confession before. The question is before us. Not who who does everyone else say Jesus is, but who do you say he is? Who do I say he is? Who do we say he is in our hearts? The Bible says that if we would confess in our heart that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And I want to give you that opportunity this morning to begin that race, to begin that journey with Jesus and to say for the very first time in your heart, you can just speak directly to him. God, I know that I've, I've done things that are wrong. I know that I've sinned. I know that I haven't been a perfect person, but I believe that you are exactly who you say you are. I believe that you came and died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you are the Christ. No matter what anyone else says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this morning, if it's been a while since you said that, and you've wandered away, and this morning you've been reminded by God's Spirit that that statement is true, talk to God right now. Say, God, one more time, I just want to say I'm sorry for where I've been. I'm sorry for what I've done, but I believe that it's true, that you are the Messiah. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this time this morning. Thank you that your spirit is with us. God, thank you for the truth that even though we sinned and did not do what was right, we did not get what we deserved because you loved us enough to send your son down and to die on the cross in our place and to be risen again that we might have eternal life with you. And Lord, we praise you. We thank you. God, we thank you for those here this morning who are beginning that journey even today. God, would your spirit begin that work inside of them? Would they know that as they run on that journey, they are not alone, that you go with them. 
And God, for those of us who are here this morning that we feel like we've wandered away, God, thank you that you always welcome us back. Thank you that you welcome us back with open arms. Thank you that your grace is enough to cover all our sin and shame. And we worship you this morning and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we finish with one final song? Round again to